guys. Good to see you. Go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. Grab a seat. It's good to have you here. I tell you to grab a seat, and I'm about to ask you to stand right back up. <laughs> if you have a Bible or an app that you use to read the Bible, we're going to read this passage standing up today. It's a big passage, right? We're going to read an entire chapter today. I know that's a stretch, um, but as I was thinking about this, go ahead and stand up. As I was thinking backstage, if you don't do this at home, whenever you're reading the Bible, you should try this. When you read standing up, and oftentimes when you read out loud, even when you're by yourself, you start to pick up things. It slows you down. You see a little bit differently than when you read it silently or sitting down. So I'm saying that just as a, free, as a freebie, but we are going to read this standing up. We're going to be in John 11 as we go through our series called Hero. This is the passage that we sit underneath today. This is the one that shows us Christ much more clearly today. John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks, if, whoops, what happened to my page? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. 
Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. But Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, Where are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into, the, into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the sanctuary to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Go ahead and grab a seat. You know, back in the late 90s, I was a spectacular rollerblader, right? It was cool back then. It's only cool in France now. But back in the late 90s, I had mad rollerblading skills. <laughs> I raced a little bit. I did a little bit of the half pipe. I was so good. I had six different emergency rooms that had a file on me. I spent a lot of time in and out of emergency rooms in all the local hospitals, and one of them sticks out above all the others. I had done a trick that I had done a million times, but I was showing off this time when I did it, and when I did, I cracked my head wide open, right above, I think it was this eye, right above this eye, I cracked it right underneath the eyebrow, 
right? It knocked me out cold. They had to kind of rouse me back to consciousness, and then one of my friends sped me to the local emergency room. And when I walked in, the nurse saw my head swelling and getting bigger, and, and, and the crease that was the wound kind of getting wider and wider, and they said, listen, it's a full moon tonight, which might explain why you're here. We don't know. But all we know is this room is packed full of people, It could be hours before we see you. It could be minutes. We don't know. So what we suggest is that you go sit over in the corner and hold that wound shut. Just kind of pinch it like this. That way when they stitch it, you know, you won't look like vanilla ice when you're done. So I thought, okay. So I went in the corner and did this right here. It looks comfortable, doesn't it? One arm up in the air, pinching my eye. I did this for three and one half hours before they brought me back to stitch my eye. I'm glad I don't look odd now. I mean, it, it all healed up perfectly. Thinking about that when I read this article by Gretchen Rubin. She is a, an editor and a writer in psychology today. She explains what makes the waiting time in waiting rooms feel longer, right? Interesting little article. Turns out there are some things that if they're present will make a minute stretch into an hour. One of them is anxiety. The tapping of the foot, looking at the watch six times in one minute, right? Doesn't it just feel like it stretches time out? Another one is uncertainty. How long is this going to last? A minute? An hour? A day? I mean, if you don't know the answer to that, you don't have an expectation, it can make time go forever. Having an unexplained wait time makes the wait time feel longer as well. Why is this taking so long? There's no one in the room. I'm the only one sitting here. I'm the only one pinching my eye. There seems to be plenty of people back there behind the curtains and everything. Why is this taking so long? It might make it feel longer. The other one is unfairness. Wait a minute. That joker came in here like an hour and a half after me, and you're calling him back there right now? I've been here longer. It makes time feel like it's stretching out and dripping, like there's great delay. Here's the big question I have for us today as we look at this passage we just read. Why does God wait so long to bring remedy to our problems? Why? Why is the time we spend in God's waiting room, to speak metaphorically, why is that so terribly long? Right? I know many of you are going through great trouble. I know many of you are going through calamities. But not only are you going through it, you've spent a lot of time in trouble, enduring time. It feels like there's a great delay, like God is not very excited to get active and and bring immediate help for you. And, and, And isn't it interesting how when we pray, when calamity and trouble comes, how those prayers sound differently the longer time is stretched out, right? Don't don't our prayers even sound a little bit differently? And maybe eventually we get to a place where we're just resolved. We're going to be stuck in that waiting room forever. Even that changes the way we see God. Even that changes the way that we pray. I think what we do, I think this because I hear it a lot and I do it a lot. I think what we typically do when there's great delay and God is not very quick to helping us is we toss it up to God teaching us a lesson. Right? Don't we do that? We're in trouble, some sort of enduring trouble in a waiting room for a long time. God kind of turns into a schoolmaster there to educate us, right? I I wouldn't be going through this trouble if there wasn't something he's trying to teach me. He's trying to educate me. He's trying to pound something into my cortex. And if I could just figure out what that lesson is, then the suffering stops, right? Don't we do that? 
And maybe whenever we start learning a lot as we go through a struggle, maybe it does stretch out over a long amount of time, and we feel like we've learned this lesson and this lesson, yet God has not lifted the trouble. He's not brought that remedy. We think, maybe I haven't learned enough. Maybe I didn't really learn what he wanted me to learn. And so we start searching. We start searching for new lessons we could be learning so that we can get this suffering to lift because suffering is a school. But doesn't that wear thin after a while? I think it does. In fact, some of you have been struggling for so long in some areas that you probably have even wondered, whatever lesson I'm supposed to learn, is it that valuable of a lesson that I'm going through this for so long? Right? Some tragedies, they just stretch. I mean, hours turn into days, turn into decades, and we wonder, man, it better be a good lesson because <laughs> this hurts. This waiting room is painful. Eventually, we can be tempted to look at God as being cruel. We could tempt to think about him as just unbalanced, maybe. Maybe when our trouble does look like decades instead of just mere days, and we're not really sure that it's about him educating us anymore, we can just see him as unloving. God is just unloving to allow me to go through this for such a long time. I'm sure there's a reason you're doing this, God. I'm sure there's a lesson you're trying to teach me. But it seems unjust and unloving for you to impose this on me, right? But what if? What if Jesus is not imposing delayed hardship, but he's entrusting it? What if he's not imposing a delay on your life, but what if he's entrusting this delay to you? What if he selects those he loves for the task of waiting? Waiting. A long time. What if he's not just about spanking us or educating us? What if that delay is about him loving us? What if God's waiting room is full of those that are cherished and loved deeply. This might seem like a hard sell, right? <laughs> he loves me, and that's why I'm struggling for so long, because he loves me. But that is one of the, the core truths in this passage that we just read. It gets missed a lot, and I love the story of Lazarus. If you look back at our archives, pretty much every Easter that comes, man, I just, I go for the softball. I go for Lazarus every time. It's such an easy message to preach, especially on Easter. I love the image of a man being called out of a tomb while death is laid rest in the tomb, right? I love the, the, the clothes, the burial clothes being shucked off. I love new life coming out of death. It's so easy. But today what I like in this passage is the delay, the long pause between the time that Jesus hears that his friend is sick and the time he shows up to do anything about it, right? It's a long time. It was an unnecessary delay. It feels like when you just read it from the outside looking in. But it's not unnecessary. Today God shows us the doctrine of delay. The doctrine of delay, the truth of God's overpowering love for you and for me as it is shown through a suspended, long, delayed action, right? And what you can't miss in this passage, and if you miss this, you're going to miss quite a bit, is that Jesus loved this family, right? I know he loved a lot of people. But when you read the Gospels, Jesus has a special relationship with this family. You catch that pretty thick. He loved them. They were friends. He even says in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them, okay? He loved them so. 
therefore, some of your Bibles say. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This doesn't seem to fit. He loved these people so much that he didn't do anything to help them, right? It seems like a misfire somehow. It'd be like me telling my, my wife, babe, listen, I can't wait for our date. I've spent a lot of time putting this date together. It's a slam dunk. It's going to be like the best date ever. So put it on your calendar for five months from now. Aren't you excited about that? I'm excited. By the way, I might be 30 minutes late, but it's going to be awesome once I'm there. It doesn't really translate value, right? Kids, I can't wait for you to get married. I can't wait for you to get married. I love you so much, but I probably won't make the wedding date, and I might show up like three days later because that would be appropriate, right? It doesn't translate, but doesn't that what it feel like? It feels like that's what Jesus is doing here a little bit. Lazarus, his sisters, love those guys. He's sick, you mean? You mean to tell me he's dying? Hmm, I might get around to it. Delay doesn't seem like the best way to show love. Immediate action does, though, doesn't it? That feels like the best way to show love, and that's what everyone was hoping for. These messengers were sent from the sisters to tell Jesus. Why do you think they sent them? Because they knew Jesus could prevent this. If just Jesus just shows up, I mean, He's done some crazy things, and he loves Lazarus. We got a little bit of an in, because we know a guy, right? If we could just get Jesus to show up, our brother might live. But that doesn't happen. Jesus stood by, and he let this happen. Don't, don't let this get by you. Consider this. He delayed, and his friend died. Lazarus, sitting up in bed, living his last days, wondering any minute Jesus is just a couple miles away. He could show up at any minute, any minute. But his breathing gets more labored. His eyes, when they blink, they take a little bit longer to open up. Never sees Jesus, just dies. Mary and Martha crying, trying to comfort each other, surrounded by people that are trying the best they can to comfort them, but no one really feeling all that comfortable, waiting for Jesus to show up. Jesus doesn't show up. So they put a funeral together. And they bury him. I don't know if you've ever had to do that for someone that you love. It's hard. So they're going through the pain of all of that, wondering any moment Jesus could show up. He doesn't. The next day they wake up, the first day of their new life without their treasured brother, Jesus isn't there. The day after that, Jesus is not there. The day after that, Jesus is not there. There was real death in this story, real pain and real loss. We know what happens, and so we forget about the pain that was felt. It was real. And Jesus, a couple miles away, was waiting. He was waiting. I struggled with this as a young believer. Jesus loves Lazarus so much that he just waits. He delays. The point I'm going to try to get to the best of my ability for you today is that it was love that moved Jesus to let Lazarus die. It was the deepest form of love that Jesus could show that provoked him to choose to let Lazarus die. It was Jesus' love for all the people that were going to see it. It was Jesus' love for his own disciples. It was Jesus' love for Mary. It was his deepest love for Martha. It was his best love for Lazarus. It was his greatest love for you, for your great-grandchildren, for me. It was his deepest love for mankind to let Lazarus die in this moment. This is a picture of what it means for Jesus to love us. One out yet? Right? 
Because we struggle with this kind of love, the love that doesn't feel like love. I mean, if I was, you know, Lazarus' brother, it doesn't say that he has one. But if Jesus came and said, listen, it's, it's for my love that this happened, I'd have thought, love? Well, take that love down the street. I mean, if this is what it means for you to love, I don't know that I want any of this. I think I'm fine without it. I've heard cancer patients say that too. I've heard those related to cancer patients say the same thing. Those who can't make babies, I've heard say that. People who struggle with poverty, who can't get a job. If this is what it means for Jesus to love me, (laughs) no thanks, right? So maybe, maybe Jesus' love means something different than we thought. Maybe it means delay. Maybe it means delay. This is what John Piper says on this train of thought. He says, love means giving us what we need most, and what we need most is not healing, but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. In other words, in other words, whenever you are in that painful waiting room, waiting for your number to come up, and it just won't come up, that the deepest form of love that God might be showing you is, is not immediate action, but it is in the way itself is he wants to bring you to a place where you experience that full, long joy by being fixated and satisfied by the glory of God. You see, God knows that that is the best thing for you and me, that satisfaction with his glory, that, that fixation on his grandeur. Let me try to say it a different way. The purpose behind all things, the purpose behind all things is God revealing his glory to you and me through the person of Jesus Christ and you and me treasuring that revelation above all things. It's him expressing, demonstrating his glory through the gospel and us treasuring that revelation above all things. That's the purpose behind everything. Let me say it in a different way. When we treasure God's glory And when we are satisfied with his glory above all things, he is therefore glorified in us. He is glorified in us. The same guy I just quoted, John Piper. I mean, his ministry has always been a large ministry, but it took off. It caught fire by this one sentence. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Some of you could have said it by memory. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Here's the problem. The problem is, is we're not really convinced that that is true. We're not really convinced that that's good for us. We believe that the best route is the fastest route out of the pain. The best journey out of the waiting room is the quickest one. Can't be the long one. We don't believe that God is good when he is purposefully slow, when he lingers two miles away. We don't like the doctrine of delay. We don't like it at all. I don't even think the sisters liked it at first. Verse 21, you see Martha saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In verse 32, Mary says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What they're saying is this. Jesus, the best thing you could have done is prevent this. Prevention is better than just letting it happen. And then what your heart says, that's what my heart says. Prevention is better than not prevention. Oh, and by the way, Jesus, where have you been for a few days? Forget the fact you didn't prevent this from happening. You weren't even here. Where have you been? I think that's the way their hearts were slanted to go. The doctrine of delay is one where God entrusts, he entrusts to you and me delay in waiting 
and suffering because he loves and cherishes us at a very deep level we might not even understand at the time. And I think also it's important at this place to know that the reward, what God is wanting to do with us in that waiting room, it might not be fixing whatever the problem is. It might just mean more God as being the best thing that could happen in that situation. Think of the story of Job. It's a great story. If you take the time to read it all the way through, you could come away with that story thinking, wow, Job really went through it. I mean, he struggled. He fought. He hurt. But look at the end. I mean, he's got a bunch of kids. He's got a bunch of property. It looks like he's finishing better than he started. At a cursory reading, that's the way it could look. But his problem wasn't totally undone. Let's not forget, he had a cemetery in his backyard. Job had a cemetery in his backyard with his kids' names on it. But he had a sanctuary in his heart. Because he had found satisfaction in God's glory and God's good news for him. That's why we see him saying this in the 42nd chapter. God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. What is he saying? I have more of you. God, I used to just like barely be able to wrap my arms around you. I worshiped you as the best I thought worship. I didn't really understand how beautiful your glory was though. Now I see it. Now I get it. And now I am satisfied. Doesn't mean his pain was gone doesn't mean he didn't miss his kids. It meant that in his waiting room, the reward was not his kids coming back from the dead. It was he got more God. He got more God. I think when we fail to believe this, the fact that Job in his satisfaction revealed God and glorified God, and Job was satisfied in God, and therefore God was glorified in Job. If we forget that, and we don't think that there's any way that there could be any good in this unless God reverses all the things that have gone wrong, it could press us in our long times of waiting into trying to find an escape, a self-medication of sorts. This hurts too bad. God's not doing anything. I've been sitting here waiting and praying and praying and praying and praying. No exit ramp, no ladder out of this place, no open door, so I'm going to start making my own. I'm going to start finding my own. This isn't just for wicked people. This is for good people. Good people will find a relief valve. We will create those things easily. Is that not where all addictions come from? Consider any addiction any addiction. It's not, not where they come from. My life is so hard right now, and God is not moving, but if I drink this, and drink a lot of it, just for a moment, my life feels a little bit better, right? Is that not where addictions come from? Sexual addiction, food addiction, media addiction. It's an attempt it's an attempt to alleviate the effects of sin in our life. I think the addictions that are actually destroying families the most now are window dressed a little bit and something that's socially acceptable. Overworking. I'm always picking on that up here because I am an overworker. Right? Overworking. My life is so hard at home that if I just spend time up here, then I can achieve greatness because I'm not the great man at home, but I could be great right here. So it becomes an escape. Right? Prescription meds. Right? I mean, we think that because we're not buying them from a young dude in a hoodie out in the alley, that it's just okay to take them. Hey, listen, it's totally legit. I got it from my doctor. He signed the prescription. He drives an Audi, went to school. So I'm sure it's okay if I take as many as I need to, even though I don't need them anymore. My name's on it. I bought it legitimately, and I can always go back and get more. 
Why? Because my life stinks. And God's not fixing it. That's where gluttony comes from. That's where all kinds of problem comes from. Delay, waiting, it's our normal, no escape, we create our own, right? How are you doing with this? How are you doing in the waiting room? How are you doing in the long delay, the long pause? Can you see your trouble and see God's glory at the same time? Are you satisfied with God in the midst of your trouble? Do you feel like God sees you and values you? Do you feel like he doesn't care about you at all? Is he crying or is he not crying? That's something that's important, by the way. We might want to talk about that a little bit. In this passage, Jesus cried. He wept. Not fake tears. He wasn't like just putting on an act. This was his friend. His friend died. I've had friends die. You've had friends die? We cry. That's what Jesus was doing right here. But here's the big question I have, and I'm sure you had it as well when you read this. This is the big question. If Jesus knew that he was going to bring Lazarus up from the grave, why was he crying? Everything's going to be fine. Why was he not happy? Now, the text says that he saw his sisters cry. He saw others crying. He was moved to tears. Jesus wept. But he knew what was going to happen. He knew that there was going to be a party that night. That night. Why would there not be? I mean, that would be crazy, right? So, of course, there's a party that night. Drinks on me. I mean, there was going to be an outfitted house. There would be a pig over the fire. There would be all kinds of great festivities because Lazarus is alive. We get more of him, right? Jesus knew this. So why is he crying right here? Listen, I don't watch Jimmy Kimmel because he's way past my bedtime, way, way, way past my bedtime. But I follow him on YouTube. He does this thing every Halloween. He's about to do it here again in, in a little bit. Where he convinces parents to record themselves taking all of their kids' Halloween candy and hiding it. And then telling them, me and mom ate all of your candy. And then recording their reactions. It's awesome. It's awesome. As a parent, I really think it's hysterical. Because, you know, the parents are doing the best they can to keep a straight face. They're fighting back laughter as hard as they can. Listen, little Johnny, I got some bad news for you. Me and mom, we ate all of your candy, you know. And they do exactly what you think they do. They roll around on the floor and they scream and they, they're looking for answers. Why would you do this to me? You know, it's so dramatic. You know, why would you? And they're just... They're trying so hard not to laugh as they record it because they know any minute they're just going to say, hey, <laughs> joke's on us. Here's your candy. Happy Halloween. You know, you know that's about to happen, so they're laughing. My question is, is, why is Jesus not doing that here? Right? I think Jesus is crying God's tears not just because of Lazarus' death, but because he's seeing up front, very close to him, the effects of sin and death. He's seeing the ravaging effect of death and sin as it collides with his treasured creation, and it is in high death when it's his friend. He sees it. Jesus is weeping, not just for a dead friend, but for your child's learning disorder, for poverty, for the sex trade here in this city, for broken race relations, for your addictions, for untimely death, marital discord, He's weeping for all of it. We see it. He's not emotionally vacant. You should be encouraged by that, by the way. Whatever waiting room you find yourself in, God's not seeing it through dry eyes. He sees the effect of sin, and it moved him to tears. 
I could argue it moved him past tears. It moved him to a cross. It moved him to a cross. God not only cries, he dies in this. Jesus, too, would very soon face death, sleeping in a darker tomb with a harsher wait time and delay to it. Look what it says in verse 49, Caiaphas. I find this to be incredible. It's brilliant how the texture of the Bible comes out in certain places, and I love it here, where Caiaphas is kind of chewing out his peers, and he's calling them idiots. Come on, you guys are idiots. Don't you know that it's better for you that one man should die for the people? Not that the whole nation should perish, And then it goes on to say, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. You are in this passage right here, by the way. You might as well put your name in there. You were scattered abroad. Your name, you, were scattered abroad. And he draws you near, pulling you into one fold with one shepherd, as we looked at two weeks ago. One body one flock, one shepherd. It's for you. So not only does your waiting room have an emotionally abundant king, but a sacrificial one. That's what we see. I know this might seem like a little comfort to you now. Consider the great depths that God has gone gone through to show you the deepest love he can possibly show. You are experiencing delay in many things right now, because of his love for you. Not despite it, because of it. You are experiencing great wait time because of his love for you. He's not emotionally vacant in your trouble. His hope is that you find satisfaction in him. He's driving you towards being fixed and full of the longest and fullest, most robust joy by being just satisfied with him with your problems, with the weight. We see this a little bit in Paul's life. This passage is read a lot, 2 Corinthians. He has this thorn. We don't know what the thorn is. He prays. It says that he asked God three times. I wonder if that prayer sounded the same all three times, though. We just think it does, like he just mechanically recited the same prayer. I wonder if it got more and more desperate or if it got less and less hopeful. I wonder what it sounded like. But he says, I asked you three times, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What's he saying? He's saying on a term of values or on a scale of values, the thorn being gone, not as valuable as feeling the strength and the power of God in me and being fascinated and satisfied by his glory. One is now more important than the other. That's what we see. We see a value exchange here. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content, satisfied. That's what that means. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Man. So if I was to drive this to application, not a long sermon today. If I was to drive this to application, how do you and me, how do we, how do we handle long delays and pain? Those waiting rooms that just won't stop. How do we handle those things, right? I'd like to just go right back to the scripture on this. John 11, the passage that we're in, the fourth verse. Jesus says something powerful. He says, the illness, this illness, speaking of Lazarus on his dying bed, this illness does not lead to death. 
It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So the first thing Jesus does, the first thing he does is put this bad news and keep it in relation with God's glory. He carries it straight to God's glory. That's the most important thing to Jesus at that moment. He said, God is glorified. This illness, it's about God's glory. It's not mainly about death. He will die. We know that. He will be brought back to life, sure. But it's mainly about the Son of God and how glorious God and his Son are. Can you and I handle our pain this way? I look at verse 4. I've got some things that I've been in a waiting room. As a man, as a pastor, as a father, and as a husband, things that I've really wanted God to just fix, he's not fixing it. Things that just change that aren't getting changed. My prayers have changed just like your prayers have probably changed. I've struggled just like you've struggled. But if I follow the steps of Jesus, I end up here in that fourth verse. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What if we took illness out and we put something else in? Whatever your waiting room is. This infertility does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This poverty does not lead to death. My deemed up marriage will not lead to death. My unemployment does not lead to death. It is for God's glory that God would be glorified through it and I would be satisfied with him and he would be glorified because I'm satisfied in him. Can we trust that God can comfort us in that waiting room? Can we trust that when we take our suffering and our long wait time and carry it to him and look at it through the lens of God's glory that he'll comfort us, that he'll bring peace to us? You know, the Holy Spirit can bring a peace that surpasses understanding. There's a passage on it in Philippians and we're about to read it, but I want you to consider that. Think about the most peaceful moment you could ever experience. I, I went through this exercise this morning and started writing some things down. What would be like pure peace? For me, it'd, be, it'd mean no work. No like things undone. I don't mind work, but I, I, no loose ends. Let me say it that way. No loose ends. Everything's tied up in a bow. Right? No phone calls to return. No emails to return. No text messages to return. No fires that need to be put out. Everything is fine at home. Everything is fine with a, with a church. Everything is fine in my heart. I'm probably in a hammock. Out in the woods. Deer running by. Trout underneath me. Right? Temperature is just right. Peace. We can work really hard and develop what the most peaceful moment could be like for us. But God promises that he could bring a peace that bends around that that exceeds that, that says that God can bring us a peace that we can't even cognitively understand. We can't explain it. We can't define it. We can't put rules to it or words to it. It just comes and it just is. And it's freeing. Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. Because we need those things guarded when we're in a waiting room. We need those things guarded, our hearts and our minds. Right? Now, this passage does not promise that pain disappears. It just promises that peace will come. Because you could have both at the same time. You can. You could have pain and peace at the same time. 
In fact, every delay that God entrusts you with, he's offering you peace by the power of his spirit at the same time. You don't get one without the other. You have access to both. Not only does he love you and cherish you enough and entrust delay and wait time to you, he offers his Holy Spirit to bring you peace in the midst of it because that's how beautiful he is. So much of a provider he is. This Holy Spirit will lead us to trust and be at peace with God's timing. This Holy Spirit will lead us to find satisfaction in him. By the way, as I'm speaking about that, some of you, I know you have to be asking yourself, but I don't, or saying to yourself, I don't really find that satisfaction in God. I'm not satisfied with him. Luke, Luke is up there preaching as if, you know, it's easy to just be so satisfied in God that you don't need things like meds or food or YouTube or alcohol. You don't need those things because you're just so enamored. You're just drooling all over yourself about God, but I'm just not there. I'm just not there. Did you know you can pray and ask God for that? We don't think we're allowed to do that. The prayer can sound like, God, listen, <laughs> I don't want you. I don't desire you like I want to desire you, if I even know what that means. I find myself not satisfied with you, Lord. That's why I keep chasing down other things. But I know that there is a better place to live, and it's to be totally satisfied with you. Can you help me get there? Can you give me your spirit to show me what that looks like? I need my diet to be changed. I want to hunger for you instead of this stuff I'm hungering for. You know, you can pray like that. God is quick with his Holy Spirit, and he loves prayers like that. Loves them. You know, between the death of Lazarus and his resurrection four days later, his family could not see how God would be glorified in it. That would not be revealed until the resurrection. For those of you right now who are in a painful piece of delay, just know, don't judge until the resurrection comes. God is more active than you understand. And when he brings light to your situation, you will get it. You'll see it. You'll be thankful for it. The resurrection will bring light to everything. In the, meantime, in the meantime, we just trust, we treasure, and we are satisfied with God above all things. Listen to this psalm. The psalmist in, verse, or in chapter 13, it's a, it's a quick one. I think there's only six verses in this psalm. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's how it starts, right? It sounds a little bit like maybe something that could have come out of Lazarus's mouth. Or Job's mouth. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? The person that's saying this is just imagining, I'm sure, Jesus being two miles away, over the hill and around the corner, but he's not coming. How long until you show up? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me. O oh Lord, my God, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And then we see this beautiful pivot that I think could not have been said unless the Holy Spirit was compelling this next statement. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. What a pivot. God, how long? But you've done so good. I'm satisfied with you. God, this hurts. When do you fix this? But the best thing for me is you. I'm satisfied in you. I love you. 
You know, application can go in 10 different directions, but if I was to take the application of this passage beyond just us nurturing and growing ourselves, take it to a broken city. Because remember, in this passage, we have a God who's crying. We have an emotionally charged God. He's not stoic like we imagine him to be. God cries real tears over the effects of sin. And I do believe with all of my heart that when he looks at Knoxville, he sees our city through wet eyes. Wet eyes. Manufacturing, he's producing emotion. There's a sickness over what sin is still doing to all of us. It's easy for us to get numb over that, though, isn't it? I mean, just by living in it, we just naturally get numb. Look at your app. Another person was shot. Okay. Weird stuff happening on the campus. Always weird stuff on the campus. Okay, it's just the way people are, you know? Families breaking up. Look at your own neighborhood. You don't even have to look at the news. That family's leaving each other. That kid just died. I'm pretty sure this guy's hitting his wife. I don't even know what's going on. They they don't even come out of the house, right? We can get numb to it because we just swim in it all day long. It's good for us to remind ourselves through our dry eyes that when God sees Knoxville, he's hurting. He hurts for it. It says Jesus wept. And it's not just for Lazarus, because later on in Luke 19, it says, and when he drew near to the city, to Jerusalem, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. Let me ask you, what are you moved by emotionally? Where do your eyes turn wet when you look and think of and see the city? All right. What are you moved by? Sure, you see a lot of areas where there's a lot of sin and where Jesus being there, where Jesus' presence would just seem to fix everything. But there, there's probably one or two things that just kind of jump off the page for you. There might be one thing that's kind of high death for you, that's close to you, kind of like Lazarus would be close to Jesus in friendship. There's something that even though you're broken about everything being broken, there's something that's calling to you, right? Emotional investment usually reflects calling. It's usually going to reflect an area where you need to involve yourself. Not to plug the calm groups, but that's why we give you guys total freedom and we encourage you to develop your own mission. Why? Because it's God's design that your heart be broken over certain things and not other things as much. God has designed us to be broken and hurting over the effects of sin. And wherever that is, is an area where we ought to involve ourselves. If you have no tears... If you have no tears for your neighborhood, your neighbors, or your city, ask God for them. Again, did you know you can pray for that? This is a prayer I have to do as a pastor all the time. It sounds a little bit like this. God, I see some real crappy things happening in this city, and a lot of it breaks my heart, but I I think I'm a little bit numb. I want to really hurt for this city. I mean, I want to be broken for this city. I'm tired of getting through days where I don't even think about what Jesus could do in this broken city. I want to be just overwhelmed and swallowed by what can we do as a church? What can I do as a man to extend God's beautiful gospel to brokenness? You could pray like that. He'll do that as well. He'll do that as well. I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand with me. You know, one day this delay will be over. The doctrine of delay will be completed. God returns. He'll call us out of our tombs. He'll unwrap us from burial clothes. We'll live in perfect place, perfect trust, perfect peace, no self-medication, no doubts, no tears, no pain. This death of Lazarus, it was real, 
and it was terrible. Just as terrible and as real as your death will be. And I know you might be tempted to say, but yeah, his is less terrible. His, Lazarus' death is less real and less terrible because we know that God raised him up. God's going to do the same thing for you. The only difference is time. Not so terrible. God is good. You know, we're about to celebrate through music and financial giving and communion together. And just as a way of introducing communion in the back, it does not only reflect the time where our king was moved past tears, but moved into a time of his body being broken and his blood being spilled. It points to another feast coming. And there's been a great delay in between. Our God understands delay. This is how it says in Mark 14. This is the last thing I'll read to you. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. He understands weight. He understands delay. When you take communion as believers, and we're asking you to do that as believers, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, I'd rather just have you take Jesus instead of some bread and some wine. But as we take it as a church, as God's corporate church, as his cherished ones, in all of our various waiting rooms, can you take communion thankfully, thankfully before God who understands delay, Thankfully, that he loves you and cherishes you so much that he didn't just cry a little bit here and there, but he gave himself for you. And then dare to ask the question, dare to ask the question, God, can you make my eyes wet? God, can you help me be satisfied with you? Because I'm just not right now. Can you, can you do that for me? Communion's a great time to do that, okay? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. This is a hard word for me to preach, Father, because I I struggle with it. I struggle with being satisfied in you. I know what that feels like. It's hard to deny, Father, that the other things around me seem to be more satisfactory. They seem to answer my, my big questions a little bit better. But Lord, I have this gnawing thing, your spirit telling me, he is telling me that I will never be satisfied escaping you. I will only be satisfied in you. God, give me the maturity to see, give us the maturity to see that you are not imposing a harsh weight, but entrusting a beautiful one to us. Lord, help us believe and be empowered where we're just not right now. Some of us are really going through some very, very difficult and hard things. But God, that we would see you emotionally involved and sacrificially involved in our weight. You're so good to us. You're so loving. I pray, Father, that you would not just be moving on your church, but those who are not in your church. That as your passage said, as, as, even, as even it said in this very passage today, that you are still gathering those outside the flock and dragging them in. Today, not just in our church, but other churches. Today, you are calling people into your fold as a good shepherd, you are springing new life up in people. And today, Father, I know that tombs will be left. Lord, that you'd be doing that on hearts even in this room today. Even in this room today. Lord, you are so good. We love you. 
and we worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.